Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. I'd like you to turn to somebody around you, one or two people around you, and just discuss this just for a brief minute. This will lead us into our passage today. Who are people today that are very unpopular or maybe people you don't want to be around or maybe people that are even despised? Turn to some one or two around you and discuss that for a minute. All right, let's um, let's come back together now. How many of you raise your hand if you have. At least one person in mind that was mentioned. Raise your hand if you have, if you were able to, your group was able to mention at least one person. Raise your hand. Or the type, not the names of the person, but the, 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 the types of the person. And this is very important as we're going to turn our attention to Luke chapter 19 today. You have to think about somebody who is despised. Somebody that nobody wants anything to do with. And that's why I wanted you to begin thinking in those terms because sometimes we read Bible stories and we read over them and maybe even if, especially if they're familiar, we, we don't grasp the human element that's involved. And one of the leading characters in our story today is a man named Zacchaeus. And he would have been named, if this would have been a group discussion back in the first century, him and people like him would have been been named. Let's read the passage and then I'll explain it and apply it. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he he looked up. And said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. I think that was a decent mutter. <laughs> He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek 
and save the lost. Now, the setting of this story, the context of this story is as Jesus was entering Jericho on the way to Jerusalem for Passion Week, his purpose and mission are reinforced by encounters with some very different kinds of people. If you look back a few uh, verses into the previous chapter, we get a we get a rich wrong, young ruler that Jesus encounters, and then we get a blind beggar, and now we get a hated tax collector. And the way Jesus interacts with all of them helps us understand his purpose and mission in life. Today we're starting a brief series. We're starting a six-week series that's going to lead us up to Easter, going to culminate on Easter Sunday called A Love Life Like Jesus, and we're looking at the way Jesus loved people so that we can learn how we should love people. And then, Lord willing, the Sunday after Easter, we're going to start a long extended teaching series through a book of the Bible that will be announced soon. (laughs) It's getting closer. The decision is getting closer. But here is what Luke 19 is all about. And this is where we start. Jesus was abandoned to his purpose of seeking and saving the lost. Jesus was abandoned to his purpose of seeking and saving the lost. And we're going to see two ways in this passage that prove that. Two ways that show us how Jesus was abandoned to seek and save the lost. The first one is how he interacted with the notorious tax collector Zacchaeus. It's how he treated him, how he spoke to him, what he said to him. All of the ways that Jesus interacted with Zacchaeus showed us what his purpose was. So let's look back at the passage at verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. Now, since Jericho was a border city, it had a custom station. And one of the it was actually one of the wealthiest cities in Palestine. So there were a lot of taxes being collected in Jericho. There was a substantial tax income. The way the Roman government collected taxes in those days, they did it through what I call independent contractors. That's not an official name, but what they did, the Roman Empire was so broad, and so in in various areas they would... uh, basically bid it out to the highest bidder to collect the tolls and the tariffs and the taxes for that particular area. And all the Roman government cared about was getting their cut, getting their amount, which meant that the tax collectors themselves could charge whatever they wanted to. They could charge whatever they wanted to, and then they would give the Roman government their part, and they would keep the rest themselves. And they were notorious for this. That's why many of them were wealthy, like Zacchaeus. In fact, he was the chief tax collector. That was one of the tax collectors who probably hired other people to work for him and collecting these various tariffs, taxes, and tolls. So this is a very common scene, but they were viewed as traitors to their people because they're partnering with the Roman government and they're taking more money than they really have to. You know, 
Here it is in March, and April 15th is just right around the corner, isn't it? This notorious time of the IRS, and nobody likes them. How many of you, raise your hands, how many of you have not even thought about starting on your taxes for this year? Raise your hand if there, is there anybody here who hasn't even thought about it? Okay, all right, that's good. How many of you are in the process of, of working on it yourself or gathering your stuff for others, okay? And how many of you are just totally done with your taxes for this year? Yeah, nobody likes them. <laughs> Just jealousy, that's all it is. (laughs) Who was this Zacchaeus? Who was he? Verse 3 tells us he wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming in the way. It's probably off to the side, a lot of... Large blooms on it, maybe be a little conspicuous, but he's up there, he's elevated, he's going to see who this Jesus is. Back then, all sorts of people wanted to find out who Jesus was, but who would have thought that a tax collector would be one of them? This crooked chief tax collector would be interested somehow in Jesus' message. Now, Again, if we go back to the larger context and we see the we see the rich young ruler, then we see the blind beggar. Now we see the tax collector. It emphasizes this. Everybody needs Christ. Everybody needs Jesus. People who are religious and irreligious, people who are poor and wealthy, people who have it all seemingly and people who have nothing. Everybody needs Jesus. And here's Zacchaeus. Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Now, some of you were thinking it should say, you come down, (laughs) because you knew that song from Sunday school, right? Come down immediately. I, and this is a very important phrase right here, I must stay at your house today. Now, regardless of how high your status was in the first century, you typically did not invite yourself to another person's home. This is a remarkable statement by Jesus. I mean, there are people, think about it, we don't know how many, but there are, there's a crowd Right? Because Zacchaeus couldn't see Jesus. He had to get up in a tree to see him. So there are people around. And in the middle of all of this, Jesus stops so all of them could hear, as well as Zacchaeus, for him to announce his plans. Zacchaeus, I have to go to your house. I have to abide. <laughs> it's almost uh, the literal translation of that Greek word. It's, it's to remain. I'm, I'm going there, Zacchaeus. And this, again, would have been pretty shocking. It kind of encapsulates what Jesus' ministry is all about. Going to people whom others had written off and ministering grace to them. 
to lead them to God. Now, when we tell this story to children, we often focus on how much trouble Zacchaeus went to, to to get to see Jesus. And there's an element of that in the story. But the most important part is that Jesus is the one taking the initiative here. He takes the initiative to stop. He could have just walked on by, right? He could have waved and said, hi, Zacchaeus, and moved on. He stopped everything and took the initiative to go to Zacchaeus's house. I must, I must, I must. And of course, Zacchaeus welcomed him gladly and, and that caused quite a stir. Quite a stir. Verse seven, all the people saw this and began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, pious Jews in that day, and this isn't a Jewish setting, would not eat uh, the food of a tax collector. They wouldn't enter the home of a tax collector. Uh, they wouldn't even do it. They wouldn't go there. One, one Jewish writing a little bit later than the New Testament paired tax collectors with murderers and robbers. So they, they looked down on tax collectors. The establishment, the religious establishment looked down on tax collectors. Who's despised today? <laughs> Could you think of anybody? Could you think of any types of people that are despised? This is Zacchaeus. And so they mutter. That word I have highlighted there is an interesting word. Um, it's used uh, ten times in the Old Testament. Uh, for instance, Exodus 15, verse 24, and when Moses is leading people, you know, through the wilderness and so forth, it says the people, and here it, all the words will be highlighted in yellow that translate the same word. It, they grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? And then in Numbers 14, 2, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or this desert. Do you see a pattern with this word? Do you see how unbecoming it is? Now, this unbecoming word for muttering or grumbling only occurs two times in the New Testament. And one of them is in Luke chapter 15 when Jesus tells the stories, the parables of the lost sheep and coin and son. And to introduce those stories in verse 1 of Luke 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law, and here it is again, muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And the other time in the New Testament is our, is our passage in Luke 19 where they mutter. Both of these instances occur in the context where Jesus is associating with bad people, where he is hanging out with bad people, where he is welcoming bad, despised people. And the religious establishment is not happy about it. I remember reading one of my one of my really people I really, really respect is D.A. Carson. I had the privilege to actually take some classes from him at Trinity. But I remember him talking about years ago he was 
off with a friend going down to the beach just to have a little bit of R&R. And they went down there. And the two of them encountered a group of rowdy, it was either, I think it was high school students. And they were drinking a lot. Anyway, Carson and his friend are sitting there and, 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 and seeing this. And, and Carson says he started, the moral outrage started in him. Like, oh, they're so messed up. And it's, we came down here to be peaceful and this and that and the other. And he was about, he said, I was about to, I was about to say something to my friend about it. And I looked over at my friend and my friend is just looking at them just kind of with a far off look in his eyes. And his friend just softly said, high school students, man, what a mission field. You know, maybe the church needs more compassion and less moral outrage. What we're seeing here as we look at Zacchaeus is a contrast between how Jesus saw Zacchaeus versus how the people saw him. The people saw Zacchaeus as somebody to avoid, to ignore, to to hate, to mistrust, to leave alone. And Jesus saw him as somebody to love, somebody to, to reach out to. Let me let me take one other example. Let me just take an example here. A sample issue. We could we could go down a number of issues here. Because honestly, our society, as you know, our society has fallen gone off the tracks. Morally, it's we're so corrupt. America is so corrupt and getting more corrupt. And it's unbelievable to me, even in the last five and ten years, right? So I think we would probably agree on that. But, and things that are not normal and not godly are being uh, shoved down our throat and down the throats of our children. That this is normal and this is acceptable. In fact, if you don't accept it, then you're not normal <laughs> or you're a bad person. So let's, let's, let's take one issue. Let's take homosexuality. And let's ask the question, what would Jesus think about people who are given to homosexuality? What what would his view towards them be? How would he relate to them? So when when we talk about an issue like this, we need to be clear that the Bible is clear that homosexuality is a sin. It's wrong. It's not God's design. The Bible makes that clear. But it's also just as clear that Jesus loves everybody. Whether they're living the way he wants them to live or not. Otherwise, none of us would be saved. So Jesus loves people trapped in homosexuality. And he would extend grace to them. And that was that's what he did with prostitutes and tax collectors. He wanted to... See them come into God's family and to be changed. I think we need to stand firmly on the rock of Scripture. There's no doubt about it. We're not going to compromise on what the Scripture teaches. But like I said, I do think the evangelical church as a whole may need less moral outrage against issues and more compassion towards people. Amen? That's what we're seeing in Luke 19. This is how Jesus looks
at a person. He wasn't endorsing Zacchaeus' lifestyle or endorsing his cheating. He's like, you know, I'm going to reach this guy. I'm not only going to reach him, I'm going to go to his house. (laughs) When you went to somebody's house, that symbolized welcome and and acceptance. So at that moment, look what happens in verse 8. Jesus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. There are two things here that indicate true salvation on Zacchaeus's part. First, calling Jesus Lord. Now, that in itself wouldn't be enough because that also is a title of respect. But when he, when he calls Jesus Lord and then he demonstrates all of a sudden he has a brand new attitude towards money and towards others, he's given evidence of a change, the change that salvation brings. He says, half of my possessions and a restitution of four times the amount. That's, that's pretty strong. Jesus didn't tell him to do that. He, he decided to do that. Now, the Pharisees required a four- or five-fold restitution over a stolen oxen or sheep only in two cases. If, if, uh, if, if you slaughtered it and sold it, and if a sufficient number of people witnessed the act. That's when they required that restitution. So this goes beyond that. It was also more than the Old Testament law required for restitution. Leviticus 5.16 mentions 20%. So he's voluntarily, voluntarily offering the amount of restitution that would have been sought if he had been taken into a Roman court. But notice a, a clear distinction here. Zacchaeus's restitution is a response to grace. It's a response to grace. It's not an effort to receive grace. Because Jesus was gracious to him... He responded. He was changed. God was changing his heart. One commentator calls this the thank offering of a changed heart. Now, for Zacchaeus, it involved a change, um, a change, change attitude towards money um, and how he was willing to treat others to get ahead. That's, that's what changed in Zacchaeus. Luke makes it very clear in all of his writings. It's a key theme in Luke that uh, how you use your money is an indication of your true spiritual condition. A lot in Luke about possessions and giving. So, for example, if we think about the story that came just before it, we didn't look at it. And we don't have time to look at it. But here's another contrast. There's a contrast between the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. And they're back to back almost. Who was the rich young ruler? He was rich. He, he came to Jesus. And he said, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, just go sell everything you had. Not everybody has to sell everything they have to inherit eternal life. But he knew that this man had an idol and it was his money. And what, what did the man do? What did the rich young ruler do? He got sad. He went away. He held on to his money. That was an indication that he was holding on to his heart, right? On the other hand, and Jesus told him that. Now with Zacchaeus, he just reaches out to him in grace. We don't have every word recorded that he said to him, of course. But 
We don't have a record that Jesus told him to give anything away. And what does he do? He says, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to give my possessions away. And if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to, I'm going to make restitution for it. That is such a contrast. Zacchaeus was touched by the grace of God and his generosity proves it. When God gets your heart, he gets your money. So verse nine, Jesus said to him today, Salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Salvation didn't come to him because he did such a fine sacrificial deed, nor because he was Jewish. But his faith in Jesus identified him as a true son of Abraham, a spiritual descendant of the great Old Testament patriarch, Abraham. So that's the first way that we see Jesus being abandoned to to his purpose. It was how he interacted with Jesus. There's a second way, and this one is as clear or more clear. It's what he explicitly stated about his purpose for coming in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You know, a lot of commentators identify Luke 19:10 as the key verse in Luke's gospel and it may very well be Jesus cares about the lost look what he gave up to 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 save the lost he was existing in heaven in a manner equal with God before and he was willing to give up that lifestyle to come and become a man a servant and to die on a cross Throughout Luke, we see Jesus reaching out to the lost. This reaches out to his purpose. What's Jesus' purpose? Did he come to be a teacher? Some people think that. Or maybe they think he came to be an example or a reformer, a social reformer, a miracle worker. And he did some of all of that. Maybe not the reforming. He didn't come to to reform social institutions. He came to be a savior. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, let's focus on the last word of this sentence. The lost. We don't use that word much in Christian circles anymore. Growing up in the churches I went to, we heard that a lot. You were either saved or lost. (laughs) What does it mean? The word lost means to be lost, to perish, to die, to be ruined. In the Bible, it's used of sheep that stray. From the rest of the flock. For instance, in the Old Testament, God's people were compared to a flock. God said in Ezekiel 34, for instance, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them as a shepherd looks after the scattered flock when he is with them. So I will look after my sheep. Let's look a couple, look at a couple instances in, in the New Testament of the same word again, highlighted in yellow. The word lost Luke chapter 8, 24. The disciples went and woke him. They're on the boat. They're about to drown, right? And they say, Master, we're going to drown. That's the same original word. We're going to drown. Luke 15, 7. Talking about, or 17, the prodigal son, which we'll look at it in a second. 
When this prodigal came to his senses, what did he do? He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And I am, same word, I'm starving to death. I'm dying. I'm perishing. I'm lost. And in verse 24, the older, uh, you had the prodigal son, but you had the other son who had stayed at home. And he was upset because of all the celebration that, that occurred and The father explained why they had to celebrate. This son of mine was dead and alive again, and he was lost and is found. Now, consider the words seek and save. The son of man came to seek and save. There's some beautiful pictures of this, and we'll look at this really quickly as we start down uh, toward the conclusion today. Luke 15, Jesus tells these stories. Uh, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then in verses 8 to 10, he tells another story about coins, a lady who has some some coins. This seems to be her dowry. I mean, this is what she has. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. She didn't say, well, I still got 90%. Who cares about that one? I still got the shepherd. I still got 99 sheep. Who cares about that one? Some of you have about 99 children in this church. And if you lose one of them, are you going to say, well, I'll just stick with the other 98? No. And Jesus tells the story about this prodigal, what we know as the prodigal son, who goes away, <laughs> totally embarrasses his father, wishes his father were dead. That's what essentially he was doing by taking the inheritance and go, and he wastes his money. And yet he comes to his senses, he repents, he comes back to his father, and the father runs to meet him and to welcome him back. And he said, Uh, My son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That's what he said to the other brother. Now, what about you? What about us? Do you have a purpose? Do you have a purpose in your life? Do you have this purpose in your life? Legendary football coach Vince Lombardi said, success demands singleness of purpose. William Barclay said, there are two great days in a person's life, the day we're born and the day we discover why. I know God's purpose for you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I know God's purpose for you. I may not know the intricacies and the uniqueness, the the differences, the way you might be a little bit different than the person beside you. But I know the common purpose that we all have as believers in Jesus Christ is to seek and save the lost like he did.
Well, not to save them, (laughs) but to be a part of his purpose to seek and save the lost. He wants us to seek the same things he sought. He wants us to love people the way he loved them. And through God's power to bring them the message of salvation. Now, what about us as a church? What about our purpose as a church? I loved that Heidi mentioned this in her, in her story about the gift this morning, about our vision. It's to make disciples who make disciples. And by the way, those, those gifts are anonymous. The people don't want anybody to know who it is. And there's just a very, very small handful of people who know, and that's what we intended. But I know this, that the people who gave it want to reach the lost. And want this church to be able to make, help this church make disciples who make disciples. That is our goal. That is our vision. That is how we're trying to glorify God. But I want to put one more contrast up. And that is the difference between a purpose of church services and the purpose of the church. Just thinking about how to apply this to us as a church. Not necessarily to individuals, but to us as a church. Although it does apply to us as individuals, as you will see. There typically in North America, there are a couple different types of church services in the last 30, 40 years. There are churches who say the purpose of our gathering, the purpose of our church services is for believers in Jesus Christ. It's for people who know him and love him. And so we're going to teach the word of God to them and we're going to inspire them to worship and love each other and help equip them for their Christian life. And That's one type. Then there's another type of church that you might call the seeker church, the seeker targeted church. They've said, we're going to design services with unbelievers in mind. We want to create a space and a place where those who aren't Christians yet can come and feel comfortable and attend church and be drawn to God in that way. Now, I I am not going to criticize any church that is trying to honor God and lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. I'm just going to tell you where we are. I'm going to remind you where we are and where we believe we should be here. And it's this. We believe that the church gathers. Think about two words. The church gathered and the church scattered. We think the church comes and gathers here. This isn't a, the, this building isn't the church. It's where the church gathers to be edified, to be built up, to love each other, to help each other, to worship God together, and to be equipped and taught the word of God so that you can go scatter and serve God all week. So that you can go reach the lost all week. Let, because we are In a church environment where we are not designing our services, the service itself primarily to speak to unbelievers, please don't misunderstand in any way that we don't have a heart to reach the lost. We do not want to say, well, we're coming together just so we can be fat and happy spiritually. Because when you do that, when we do that, when we lose our heart and our vision for the lost, we've lost Jesus' heart. And that's what we're seeing today in Luke chapter 19. The Son of Man came to do what? 
Seek and save the lost. Now, we... Again, I'm talking about church services. I'm not talking about the purpose of the church. The purpose of this church is to make disciples who make disciples. And you know what step one of making disciples is? Evangelism. You know, live, grow, go. The first step is introducing people to Christ, helping them live. And then we help them grow, and then we help them go do the same thing. We do things in this church. Uh, uh, Every Friday morning, there are women here from many, many, many nations that gather for ESL, and we teach them English, but we're also teaching them the Bible, and it is amazing how many, how many of them in their countries that they came from, they've never heard about God or heard about Jesus at all. And we, we do stuff like that. We do vacation Bible school in the summer. That's going to be coming up. We don't do it just so we can have a religious program for five days during the summer. We do it so we can reach into our community and embrace people who might be wanting to learn about Jesus and they're willing to let their kids learn about Jesus. Our summer mission camp, yeah, our high schoolers are going to go and they're going to learn and grow and study the Bible. But last year, they also baptized some right there in the ocean to give evidence of their faith in Christ. So there are things we do outside of Sunday morning that are clearly designed corporately to do that but fundamentally please hear this fundamentally here's our evangelism strategy all of us all of you who know Jesus personally you build relationships with people you pray for them you love them and you intentionally share the gospel with them because you rub shoulders with people that this church as a whole will never rub shoulders. You know people that I'll never know. You know people that your elder will never know, that your whoever will never know. So this, let's don't mistake our purpose of our service with the purpose of the church. Well, wrapping it up quickly here, how does Jesus' purpose impact you today i want i want to give, give two ways first of all if you are lost <laughs> accept jesus salvation yeah we i have been talking to believers primarily today i've been talking to people who are already christians but i want you to know something if you're not a christian yet if you're seeking to learn about him you're welcome in this place we're glad you're here <laughs> we love having you come and learn and and, and sing the songs and, and hear people sing and see people worship and hear God's word and God's meaning. To, you're, you're welcome here, whether you're watching online or whether you're coming in person. You are welcome here. And maybe you're Zacchaeus in the story. Maybe not despised like Zacchaeus, but you're not a Jesus follower yet. And I would say, can you see Jesus' heart today? Can you see his heart? He loves you. He wants you to be saved. If you're lost, he wants you to be found. And every Christian in this building and every Christian watching this online is only a, only a Christian because he decided to find us. So open your heart to him. And if you are found, adopt Jesus' purpose. Don't make excuses like somebody else will do it or I'm too busy or I'm not able. And don't just assume that people aren't interested in Jesus. 
because they may not appear. Who would have thought Zacchaeus would have been interested in Jesus? Well, let me tell you this story as, as I wrap up. Ron Hutchcraft met a woman on a plane many years ago whose great-grandfather was a professional seaman. He sailed on ships, and he was assigned to sail on the Titanic. He was, that was his assignment. But at the last minute, they switched him to the Carpathia, which was the first ship that came to rescue some of the people that, that were perishing. He could have died with the two-thirds of people that died in the icy waters, but he felt like God had spared him so he could rescue others and he did he helped and ron uses that as an analogy for what god does for us he has rescued us from spiritually dying so that we can help in the process in which god rescues others he says this don't be content to settle in on the rescue ship with others who've already been saved you've been saved from certain spiritual death now Don't be content to enjoy a cruise on the rescue ship of Jesus. You've been spared to be a rescuer. Jesus was abandoned to the purpose of seeking and saving the lost harvest. Let's be abandoned to that purpose too. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.